Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the director of content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Maple Brown Abbott. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for discussion, but the final control remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Jeff Bazan, who is head of Asian Pacific Equities for Maple Brown Abbott. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. You joined Maple Brown Abbott in 1995. That's in today's terms a very long tenure. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what the secret sauce there is? And I believe you also worked with Robert Maple Brown during that time. Can you tell me a little bit what he was like? Sure. Thank you. Look, uh, it is a long time. Um, uh, sometimes it feels longer than others. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating ride. I, I guess I, um, I joined Maple Brown Abbott in 1995, not really knowing much about the company, it was pretty small back then. I think we just crossed, or they just crossed, one billion in assets under management. Uh, but I joined as a, as a research assistant, working directly with, with John Kitely, who was the sort of co-PM alongside Robert. And uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to really sort of work closely with, um, uh, with those two, as well as the broader team. John Murray, uh, who you probably know from Perennial, formerly Perpetual, was there at the time. Uh, and it was... Uh, yeah, it was just an incredible experience and a great opportunity. So very, very grateful with that. Why have I been there so long? Well, uh, it's, it's a great company. The culture's very strong today as it was back then. And I guess the, you know, the, the unique thing about our job is you come to work every day really not knowing what's going to be in front of you and circumstances, opportunities are changing all the time. So really where you work is secondary to the work you're doing. And, um, you know, the company's always fulfilled my sort of ambitions and uh, and as I say, been a great, uh, great place to work. So I've never really had the, uh, the desire or the urge to, to leave is the, is the simple answer. Yeah. Have you seen much change in, in the way uh, people invest uh, from those early days to now? That's uh, an interesting question. Look, in terms of the DNA and the ethos of our company, not, not a great deal. We've, we've always sort of, well, we've retained the same kind of long-term bottom-up focus, very much valuation orientated of course what's changed is uh, is is the amount of technology news flow uh, the number of market participants so the, uh, the the volume in the markets the the leverage is all much greater so it, it, it's tended to sort of accentuate moves and uh, and the market response to 
to news flow. But fundamentally, it's uh, it's pretty similar, I'd have to say. I think you originally started as a credit analyst. When did you make sort of the switch to equities and, and, and why did you do that? Well, I graduated in the end of 1993. So that, that was the tail end of the of the recession we had to have. Uh, and the economy was was pretty tough back then. So so jobs weren't weren't that plentiful for graduates. So um, I was offered a job with National Australia Bank uh, in their graduate program the year before. And I, I elected to go back and do an honours year. And then that, they kindly provided an opportunity after my final year to, to join their corporate banking grad program. So uh, that, that was a great opportunity in hindsight. I, I think if, if I look back as a graduate, working in a bigger company with systems, opportunities for rotation and people with time to train and to mentor you uh, was probably beneficial. We certainly didn't have anything like that at, at MBA. I worked with some great people at, at NAB, including Mike Baird, who was there at the time. And um, yeah, that was probably the last time I've got to go to lunch on a Friday and not have to come back, by the way. <laughs> the, the bankers used to like to go to Phillips Foot down in uh, in the rocks and have steak and beer. That that never flew at Maple Brown Abbott, so, so that was a highlight. I think those days are permanently gone. Yeah. But you, you asked why I joined. Look, I, I think I always knew I wanted to be in equities when I joined banking. I was on the other side of the balance sheet, but it was still very much relevant experience. And yeah, it was a function of, of taking the opportunity when... Um, uh, when I saw the the job advert at MBA, which in those days was in the AFR on a Friday, which is where we <laughs> all uh, used to go to look for, for job opportunities. Yes, another uh, big change uh, with today. So you're head of Asia PEC uh, equities. Um, so does that cover both Australian and Asian equities? It does. Uh, mandates vary uh, according to uh, Asia Pacific includes Australia and New Zealand, uh, Asia excludes them. Uh, most of our mandates, or the vast bulk, exclude Japan. We, we did start a new strategy last year, Dividend Growth Fund, and that has an allocation to Japan. But generally, it's uh, I think it's 14 markets if you include the, the non-benchmark uh, countries like um, Vietnam and uh, Pakistan in the broader Asia-Pacific ex-Japan region, which is effectively our remit. Yeah. Now, one of the biggest markets in that area is, of course, China, and uh, we've seen some interesting development in, in the last few days. Can you tell me a little bit about your thinking of, of some of the recent trends? So we've seen a lot of volatility, a crackdown, regulatory crackdown on, on, on some of the internet companies, the education sector. Um, we saw a collapse of, of, of Evergrande. Um, what, what can we sort of uh, make of all of that? Yeah, look, it's, uh, it, it's been... Um it's been a very difficult period for, for the region and China, particularly over the last uh, last couple of years, really, or perhaps even longer, if you look back to the, the sort of the start of the trade war um, that, that was heralded by the, the Trump administration. Look, I, I think the short answer is we should expect more volatility and, um, and nervousness in markets. However, you know, we really need to put into perspective the extent of the, of the derating and the moves that we've seen to date. Uh, and, and sort of, you know, just take a, a sober assessment of that. There's no doubt we're at crisis levels in terms of, of where markets are, where their valuations are, where sentiment is, but it's not clear to us that that's the case on the ground when we talk to the companies we own. They're certainly undergoing a number of headwinds as a result of, of, of a weakening economy. Um, you mentioned some of the regulatory impacts that's had different... Uh, or varying degrees of uh, of impact, 
uh, particularly in the in the tech sector, which we can come to. But broadly speaking, uh, our sense is that uh, that there are a number of opportunities there for for long term investors. Now, I should caution you; I would have said that six months ago, um, but it's uh, it's become even more apparent after the moves in the last few days. Uh, not to dismiss or trivialise what's going on, but looking at fundamentals, valuing cash flows as we do including dividend streams, which in many instances are growing, uh, we, we, we still see opportunities for, uh, for, for optimism. And, and, and certainly we think we can make some money yeah. uh, in that market over a medium term. Yeah, so we've just recently seen in the last couple of days the confirmation is, uh, for, of, of Xi Jinping for his third term uh, in the party congress. Um, from sort of an investment perspective, do you see that as sort of good in the sense of the stability there going forward? Or is it is, is there more, you know, jitters in the market because this is relatively unprecedented? Oh, it's it's most clearly the the latter. One would have liked to have seen an orderly change in the baton to a, a new generation of leaders or, or, or at least a, uh, a, a change in, in leadership, leadership, fresh thinking, challenging existing ideas. But of course, that's that's not possible, and that was never going to be likely. I think it was well flagged to us several years ago that the Xi planned on on sticking around. So, to that extent, I'm surprised the market has been as surprised uh, as it has been, uh, given the moves we saw yesterday. Because I, I you know, I, I think it was if you were a betting man or woman, it would have been the long uh, odds-on kind of outcome that we received. But in the context of everything else we've had, uh, the, the Russia-Ukraine dispute, obviously ongoing tensions with the US, slowing economy, the COVID lockdowns, it's all added up. And I think people, uh, some investors have, have probably um, been tested too much. And yesterday did have a sense of capitulation about it. Some of the moves that were completely um, price insensitive, uh, which you tend to see in, in, in severe market sell-offs and. Uh, as I say, hopefully it is a capitulation and we can rebuild from here. Yeah. Now, in, in the Asian markets, probably the, the, there's a lot more geopolitical tension than it was a few years ago. How do you incorporate that into your investment process? Uh, does that you know, inform the way you invest in the individual companies as well? Ultimately, it does. We, we, we assign a, a terminal multiple to, to all businesses we look at or all companies we, we we analyze with a view to investing or not investing and that terminal multiples are impacted by the individual company attributes but also the the country factors and um, geopolitics is is obviously one of those it's it's very imprecise and very difficult to um, to apply at a at a stock or indeed a market level um, but but obviously we, we we seek to do so and in terms of the earlier mentioned uh, regulatory crackdown how did you interpret that and did it cause any problems for, for your portfolio? Yeah. Well, initially, um, we viewed it actually with, with some some pleasure because we, we had no exposure to, to most of the, the stocks that were being targeted um, and, and that were most negatively impacted from the crackdown. So from a relative performance perspective, it, it was quite favourable. We, we had no Alibaba at $320 or wherever the stock was when, uh, when the anti-IPO was pulled. I must say we were always a bit wary of the education stocks because we felt that they were in essentially direct competition with the state with respect to giving those with the means a leg up over those that don't. And if you think about the kind of, uh, you know, the 
the, the premise of of a command economy or a communist country like China that that did feel a little uh, inconsistent, and, and we'd, we'd we'd had some bad experience with prior. Um, companies in that sector, both in, in Singapore and Korea previously. But as it wore on, it, it, it became a, a headwind for the whole market in terms of impacting the multiple that, that investors were willing to ascribe to China and has, um, as I say, had a, had a wide, wider secondary impact beyond just the, the initial stocks that, uh, that were being targeted. And I have to say we've, we've, we've bought into a number of them now because we think the um, the dislocation in the share price more than discounts the uncertainty that that regulation has provided, and um, you know if you look year to date, uh, the, the regulatory reset has largely concluded that, that there's been no further meaningful adverse moves taken in that space. You've had some game approvals reinstated for the likes of Tencent and NetEase, yet these stocks are down a further fifty percent. Right. So it just shows you. Uh, what a dramatic sell-off we're, we're witnessing. Yeah. So you didn't have a large exposure to to some of those companies that got caught up in a crackdown. And I think partly that's probably explained by the fact that, that you're a value investor. So sort of the higher growth technology companies are probably less on your radar. Is that is that fair to say? That was the case. It's less so today, given many of them now are arguably quite deep value. The free cash flow yield on, on stocks like Baidu and Tencent and Alibaba um, is approaching 10%. Be well north of that for, for Baidu, given how um, how far it's sold off. So uh, yeah, it's interesting how the value cycle changes over time and stocks that can go from being outside of our, our universe or, or interest uh, list are, are now firmly on there. Yeah. So can we delve a little bit into your philosophy of value investing? Um, I was speaking recently with with uh, an asset owner that sort of made a distinction between people that really go for absolute uh, cheap stocks, people that look more at sort of intrinsic value and cheap stocks within the context of the sector, and, and, and people that basically look at cheap relative to their earnings potential. Where do you fall in? Oh, look, I think at times it's been a bit of all three. I would say in Asia, we tend to be more on the relative value side rather than the the absolute value. And the, and the reason for that is there's no shortage of optically cheap companies in, in Asia. Uh, Korea is a great example. Historically, it's tended to trade at pretty big discounts to to the rest of the region and the rest of the world. And, and arguably, a number of stocks deserve to be at big discounts if they're doing national service or if they have a uh, a poor capital structure or uh, management clearly aren't running the business for the uh, the prerogative of of shareholders. So by looking at, at at relative value, or we call it intrinsic value, hopefully we can capture opportunities in in better quality companies, companies with with better growth prospects, um, and recognise that in in a suitable price or multiple that we pay for them. Uh, the the other sort of virtue of investing in Asia. If, if indeed it is a virtue, is it tends to be more cyclical and volatile. So if you're patient, most stocks come back to your kind of um, your hitting zone if, if you wait long enough through some kind of exogenous factor or, or or just timing in the market. Yeah, so there's some mean reversion uh, there. 
inevitably, yeah. So China has sometimes been described as more of a, a, a growth-style in investor market, partly because of uh, um, now more heavy way towards technology sector, but also because there's a bit of a cultural aspect there where there's a large retail presence that potentially is more on the speculative side rather than the sort of long-term investment side. Does that make it harder for a value investor to find opportunities in China? Periodically it does. That's certainly true for, for the A-share market. And if you look at the uh, – feels weird to be talking about bull markets at the moment – but if you look back at the, the 2015 um, or 2014 bull market that occurred predominantly in the A-share market, it was up up sort of 2x in the space of, of less than a year. A lot of that was driven by fast money, hot money flows, uh, speculative kind of retail punting. Uh, if Macau's too far away, I think the casinos are, sorry, the stock market's a viable second option. Um, <laughs> so there, there were a lot of stocks that were just trading at absurd levels. Um, and for the big benchmark stocks, like some of the tech names, um, FinTech, uh, it does make it tricky, but again, you need to have confidence in your in your process and, and, and faith in your sort of the team and the um, and the investment um, philosophy that we have and, uh, and and sort of look through that and uh, yeah it's gone very much the other way now hasn't it yeah. India is a little bit like that today I mean it's 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 uncanny how popular India has become um, particularly in a backdrop with rising interest rates oil at a hundred dollars. Um, you know, these are normally things that would challenge the, the Indian economy, yet the market has very much looked through that. There have been some good good reforms there that have allowed them perhaps to, to be more um, resilient than, than they may have been in the past. But nonetheless, the market's taking a very glass half full approach to India. Um, and it's exactly the opposite with China today. So I think to some extent India is benefiting from, from China's demise. But uh, it's, it's an illustration of, of my point, I think. Yeah. So there has been a lot more interest in sort of the Indian market, especially uh, when Modi came around to to implement some of the reforms. We're now a few years on from sort of those those first implementations. What do you make of that? Has has the sort of Modi reforms been overhyped, or or do you already see sort of the the fruits coming out of that? Mm, it's a, it's an interesting question. Uh, look, I, I think the short answer is is very much yes, the, the reforms have been a positive for, for the economy. Uh, if you look at the performance of, of GDP growth this year, the economy is nudging on sort of 10% nominal GDP, uh, credit growth running at sort of 13% levels we haven't seen in almost a decade. Um, as I just mentioned, it's, it's, the economy has been very resilient to the, to the oil price. Normally the current account deficit would, would feel some pressure from from oil at these levels. The currency's been weaker, but but not sort of dramatically so. So things like the GST have, I think, been very much positive. Uh, reforms to the, the bank, bankruptcy code. Um, there's been some restructuring on the on the private sector, sorry, on the on the public sector banks. Demonetization, I think, which was 2016. I, I think you could argue that was probably a, um, a poorly enacted and unnecessarily negative impact on the economy uh, that that really dislocated a lot of people's lives and um, it's not sure what benefit arose from that but in in total I think the reforms that you've seen there have been been very positive so in in China uh, um, there's a lot of attention for the technology stocks but are some of the more interesting sectors in in India yeah well as I said earlier it's hard to find things that uh, that look reasonably priced now just given how 
how well the market's performed. Probably our biggest exposure to India at the moment remains on the financials. Uh, so um, they, they've undergone a pretty challenging period really over the last decade with a, um, you know, a legacy bad debt cycle, particularly on the, on the public sector side where there was a lot of um, sort of state-directed or subsidised lending to inefficient sectors, particularly in power. Some, uh, a great deal of that has, has now been worked out um, and the banks are, are starting to, to grow again. I mean, mortgage debt to GDP in India is something like 13%. It's very, very low. Okay. The, the runway for growth in India uh, from a credit perspective uh, is enormous. And, and that's why people get so excited with it. I mean, the, I think the credit multiplies like one and a half times or 1.3 times GDP. So the, the kind of number I quoted before sort of dovetails with that. And, and that could reasonably be expected to continue for, for a number of years. Uh, so we, we, we still have a pretty meaningful exposure to a range of, of banks uh, in India. And uh, beyond that, some of the industrial names like Reliance Industries we, we still own and like. Um, uh, outside of that, it's, it's very much stock specific. There's a, a small handful of companies that we, we can still see upside in, but, but broadly speaking, it's getting getting tougher and tougher there, just given how popular the market is. So with those valuations becoming relatively full, um, have you taken a bit of profit on that part of the portfolio? We have. Um, we've moved from what was a reasonable overweight in India several years ago now to being sort of modestly underweight today. Uh, I mean, demonetization was, a, was an opportunity to pick up some, some stocks there uh, in, that, uh, in that sort of sharp sell-off. And also during uh, India's COVID wave, which was very nasty, uh, but very short-lived and very quickly overcome. Um, but during that time, the market uh, had a um, had a short period of, of underperformance, and we were uh, able to to add to weight there. But uh, here and now, we've we've tended to be selling rather than buying in India. So, can you tell me a little bit about sort of your philosophy towards holding periods? Um, do you have sort of a, a minimum holding period, or does it really depend on on the company that we're talking about? Look, ultimately, it depends on the company. When, when we analyse a, a stock, our, our team of analysts, we we, we take a, a minimum four-year investment horizon. So we're, we're genuinely trying to, to value uh, a stock on a, on a medium to long-term basis. So we, we think if there's a if there's a recurring inefficiency in the market that that we can exploit, it's as as obvious as it seems. It's the market is is very reluctant to look beyond six months or twelve months. Um, so if you if you can identify a good company that may be experiencing some shorter term headwinds, uh, perhaps its its earnings are under pressure, some cyclical headwinds, but on a longer term perspective, you can clearly see uh, how that business could continue to to grow and do well. Uh, that that's you know that that's an opportunity we'll we'll try to exploit. Sometimes the the thesis is realised more quickly, uh, and, and the stock will run up above sort of fundamental value on a short horizon. That's a good good outcome. Uh, sometimes we get it wrong and, and our earnings are uh, misspecified or, or something else happens and, and it's clear the investment thesis is, is not panning out as you, as you expected so you, you, you may exit the position but typically we'd like to hold companies for, for four years and our, our portfolio turnover tends to bear that out. It's between sort of 20 and 30 percent per annum so that's sort of somewhere between uh, you know, five to, to yep. three three years. Yeah. 
Now, China and India are probably, you know, some of the, the markets where people see the most opportunities, but Asia Pacific is much larger. Are there sort of any countries that fly under the radar in that sense? You're right. Those two probably dominate the headlines. Um, I mean, Vietnam's an interesting market. It's a non-benchmark country presently. That may change at some point. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's a big country in terms of scale, 100 million or so population, uh, quite a, uh, an attractive dim- uh, demographic dividend, a bit like India with a very young cohort of people, um, surprisingly large number speaking English. So it's quite attractive for a range of foreign companies to, uh, to, to base themselves there. And you've seen Vietnam benefit a little bit from the kind of China plus one strategy that, that many companies are seeking to diversify their the manufacturing away from China. Um, so that's a, that's a market that I think um, we'll probably continue to, to hear more about and see more opportunities in. The other one from a, a contrarian perspective here and now to me would be Korea. I mean, Korea has, has performed almost as poorly as China over the last year, um, particularly in US dollars. I mean, the one is, is back to its levels at uh, at its GFC lows around 1441 to the dollar. So it's it's really been uh, marked down very heavily and I, I do think that's uh, that's somewhat of an opportunity. We've been adding some weight there recently. What, what has driven that uh, downturn in in, uh, in Korea? Because with China it's sort of, you know, relatively obviously linked to, to some of the things we mentioned before, but Korea didn't have like a big regulatory crackdown. No, no. In fact, there's been um, uh, a new government elected in in Korea, which is ostensibly more market orientated, more pro-market. There's uh, tax cuts being um, proposed, reforms that are generally viewed as sort of market positive. I think the simple reason is um, China, sorry, uh, Korea sells a large share of their exports, about a quarter, I think, to China, almost as much as Australia. Um, and of those exports, they're obviously predominantly in the um, in the semiconductor um, area, which is which has uh, seen some weakness as a result of of, of lower memory prices, etc. Um, but fundamentally, we, we we think it's been overdone. Um, there's a couple of other factors at play. Of course, the the yen has been very weak, and Korea competes a lot with Japan in a number of industries. So there's there's perhaps been some um, some impact from from that, but uh, uh, yeah, we, we we think the market looks okay. Yep. So we can't have any investment discussion these days without touching at least on on ESG and, and sort of decarbonisation. Now, China uh, has has recently um, committed to decarbonisation by twenty sixty. How how important do you think that that commitment is, and, and how does that come back in sort of your uh, view on Chinese equities? Yeah, sure. Well, I said we had a long-term horizon, not quite that long. What's that, 37 years? Um, I think that's beyond most uh, feasible investment horizons. But look, it has had a meaningful impact in terms of relative performance within the market. You've seen huge amounts of capital flow into sectors like polysilicon, where China now dominates, likewise on the the new energy vehicle or the the EV supply chain. Um, Periodically, that sort of results in um, short little bubbles that um, that have erupted across some of those uh, renewable spaces and sectors. We've seen some stocks have some pretty dramatic kind of 
spikes and then then fall as it's clear that the the profitability of those sectors or the ability to derive a return on capital is is going to take longer than expected. I read something in the in the paper on the weekend. I think that the estimate for, for China's investment to achieve that would be something like 14 trillion US dollars, which is broadly the size of their economy today. So right. um, I, th I think you need to take some of those headline numbers with a grain of salt. But of course, the, the, the implication to answer your question is that there are structural tailwinds for those sectors that are aligned to to decarbonisation. I think that's obvious for all to see. The fact that it is obvious means that the stocks tend to be bid up very strongly, and hence I said sometimes un unsustainably so. But it, it, it's going to be a, an enduring thematic. I think, regardless of the uh, the political imperative, the reason China was, is pursuing these strategies is is twofold. They, they import most of their uh, their, their energy requirements, particularly oil, so they're keen to diversify away from that. Uh, and then secondly, you only have to go to China, particularly in the industrial areas, to see the real issues that pollution uh, was creating. So I, th I think it's kind of, you know, an outcome born from necessity rather than anything else. But of course, uh, it, it's welcome if they can achieve those objectives, but uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, they've got a big task. I mean, they've had something like twice the the emissions of the United States with a fifth of the income per capita. So, uh, yeah, it'll be a tricky one. So some of these sustainable-themed stocks were bid up to unsustainable levels of valuation. Was there a bit of a, a green bubble going on last year? Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it. Uh, absolutely. And in some respects, uh, that, that would still be occurring, particularly among maybe some of the, um, some of the lithium miners, etc. But it's yeah, it's early days in what's likely to be a very long-term secular um, thematic. So I think that's to be expected. Um, you know, one of the stocks we like in that area very much would be LG Chemical, and uh, its core asset is is a controlling 80% plus interest in LG um, ESS, the the, the battery uh, manufacturer. It's the number two uh, lithium-ion uh, battery maker. Uh, in the world, it's the number one outside of China. So we think they will benefit both through the, the demand thematic, but secondly, um, by companies seeking to sort of diversify away from the, the chokehold that, that China really has on that entire supply chain, right from uh, for, from lithium processing down to, to battery manufacturing and, and, and EV production. Yeah. So yeah, 2060 is, is very far away, but, but China is also home to some of those companies that, that might benefit from this, as you mentioned, with the electrical vehicle production and, and investment probably will precede it by, by many years before we sort of get there. Um, how do you see that play out? And, and I think of that also in the context of, you know, where we talked earlier about the value style of investing. Um, if you look historically, value tends to gravitate more towards cyclical uh, type of companies, which which tend to be not the most green companies uh, in, in general. How do you see that development play out? As this transition happens, will that sort of create an environment that is uh, uh, less beneficial to value investors, or will there be just different type of companies that still have value characteristics? Look, I, I, I'd like to think it will be the sec the latter. Obviously today, the, arguably the entire market is, is deep value. Um, you're right, when, when you have a, an investment approach and philosophy that, that is focused on, on valuing earnings and, and predominantly cash flows, 
it is hard to to value or to capture the opportunity and start up new technology businesses. And, and I think we can see that and, and we're often comfortable with that because, um, you know, that's often a very uncertain time in the investment cycle and, and you can have the one winner and, and several other losers around it. So uh, it's not always a, um, a surefire way of, of attaining success. So with that point sort of stated, I, I think there are plenty of opportunities for, for managers like us to to, to capture that opportunity, LG Chemical would be a classic example of that. It's a very high quality business trading at sort of 11 or 12 times earnings, which we think is um, is excellent value compared to a, to a cattle or or, or or equivalent, which is you know trading on high teens PE uh, or much higher than that indeed. So um, yeah, you just you need to do your homework and you need to be prepared to sort of look at perhaps what's less obvious to um, to, to the mainstream. Yeah, who would have thought that, that the technology stocks at this moment show deep value characteristics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and a lot of people say they're, they're ex-growth. Uh, we, we, we disagree with that. We think they're likely to grow more slowly. Um, but it's it's clear to us through speaking to these companies that uh, that the near-term operating conditions, that, that they're more exposed to, to, to cyclical factors than perhaps people uh, had accounted for when they were growing at 50 to 60 percent plus type top line growth in you know in in, in recent years, uh, so we, we we think a sort of a top line growth of 10 to 15 percent is in, entirely feasible for a business like 10 cent through the cycle, uh, and as I said earlier, it's it's yielding you a pretty attractive free cash flow multiple today and buying back stock, um, doing all the things, cutting costs, all the things you would expect to see for a uh, for a company being run for for shareholders. Now we've spoken a lot about sort of the Asian uh, markets. What about Australia? What is sort of uh, some of the sectors that you like uh, today in Australia? Should have brought some of my Aussie colleagues who are far closer to the, to that than I am these days. Look, the, the Australian markets held up well. It's it's worth noting, partly through it achieving a sort of a premium rating, certainly within the region, and I, I think there's very sound reasons for that. Uh, secondly, obviously, the economy's held up pretty well. And thirdly, the, the commodity cycle has continued to sort of bail us out as, uh, as it seems to have done in, uh, in, in the last decade or so. Uh, within that portfolio, we, we typically still find more value in some of the, the cyclical exposures or, or sectors, including resources. Banks have been a, a nice source of alpha for the, for the team in, um, in recent months. Uh, we'd like to see the the headline multiples on some of those premium industrial stocks, the CSLs of the world, etc., cetera, uh, come back to, to more reasonable levels. Uh, it's been quite interesting how they haven't derated anything like what you've seen across the world with, with interest rates going up. They've, they've been um, well supported even at, at you know, higher levels. Yeah. Maybe we can finish up with, with a little bit uh, going back in the history. Were there any sort of favourite traits that you had uh, over the years? Hmm. Yeah, look, um, I, th I think given the nature of our investment, which tends to be contrarian and, and we're really looking to, to buy things that are out of favour, sometimes it, it, it feels very uncomfortable to be doing that and it's only in hindsight that you, you can see the success of the investment and wish you'd, you'd, you'd been more aggressive. I, I know one example springs to mind was actually uh, during SARS in, in Hong Kong in um, 2002, 2003, uh, we were sitting here in sunny Australia and People were literally panicking 
in, in Hong Kong at the time. And uh, I remember buying Sinook and a number of other Chinese listed, um, or Hong Kong listed Chinese companies that were just being absolutely sold uh, to, to crazy levels during that period. And by taking a longer term view and um, not being as caught up in the in the hype on the ground as it as the case was in Hong Kong, we could we could add a lot of value there. Uh, likewise, in India, I think I mentioned a couple of the examples there around demonetization prior to the uh, Modi election. Actually, sentiment was incredibly weak to India. Uh, that that was really an opportunity we took to to load up on that market. Uh, so that'd be two examples that, that spring to mind. And if you had to choose between being a value or a contrarian investor, what would you pick? Well, I, th I think they're complementary. Generally, they are. But to, if, I, if I had to be one or the other, known as one or the other, I, I, I think um, you know, staying focused on valuations will, will, will serve you well in the long stead. So yeah, I, I, I'm proud to be a value investor, but as we discussed, our, our, our approach to value is very much relative value linked to the intrinsic uh, uh, fundamentals of the company. But who wants to overpay for an asset? That's what I want to know. Exactly. Nobody does. <laughs> Well, Jeff, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.